On the Sunday leading into Holy Week, most likely March 29th, actually, A.D. 33. So, okay, the, the reality about Christian doctrine is that Christian doctrine is based, it's rooted in history, all right? The, the claims of Christian doctrine are centered on historical claims, and that's unique, you know? That's different from every other world religion. Every other world religion has at its center some kind of good advice, some kind of law, some kind of instruction for you to follow, right? Um, and yeah, every religion makes some kind of historical claim, but if those historical claims were more metaphor, it doesn't really matter, right? Like, if Gautama Buddha didn't really seek enlightenment under that tree, that wasn't history. If that was like, you know, there's a reason that historians are hesitant to make any kind of claims about whether or not Gautama Buddha is a historical figure. If he didn't really come to enlightenment under some tree somewhere, uh, as the stories go, it doesn't really matter on Buddhism. Because on Buddhism, you don't, you don't find some form of salvation or enlightenment on the basis of that historical act. You find it on the basis of following this humble pathway. Like working up enough humility and inner peace in order to arrive at this, at this enlightenment, this level of enlightenment, kind of climbing this ladder, right? The same is true of Islam. You know, if, if Muhammad didn't really move the mountain, and certainly there are scholars from within Buddhism and Islam who would say like, no, this is more like metaphor. But, but you know what? It can be. Because if he didn't really move the mountain, if that didn't really actually happen in history, it doesn't really matter because Allah would say your focus should be on the five pillars. This is how you're going to be saved. But on Christianity, it's wholly different. You know, it's like, when we come together to talk about Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday, Good Friday, you know, some people might say, oh, okay, so I come into church and I see the waving of palm branches and, and there's, you know, it's, it's nice that Christians have this opportunity to kind of reflect on this nice hyperbole, this story, this metaphor of Jesus doing these things. But no, that's actually what Christians gather together to do <laughs> is to, to remember to, to acknowledge, to believe upon the history of these events. Like we're coming to proclaim the truth about something that happened, an event that happened in history that saved us. And in fact, the same author of this letter in Ephesians will say at a different point, if this didn't happen historically, you know, if Jesus didn't die and rise again, then we all are here for no reason at all. Like we might as well be doing any other old thing. And you, you, know, you, can make Christian, you can say what you want about Christian doctrine. You can, you can make it say whatever you want. But it's nonsense if Christ didn't actually, in history, literally die and then physically, bodily rise again. These are historical events. And you know, what's exciting about Christianity is that like, it's actually it's something that can be substantiated. right? So historians believe that Jesus lived, that he died on the cross, the Romans crucified him that his followers saw him alive following the crucifixion. And there are a handful of dates that scholars say, all right, the, the possible dates for this to have happened would be the following. But the majority view is that this most likely happened on March 29th, 33 AD. You know, it's, it's really interesting and, and encouraging too because what it says to us is like, you know, there's a very real possibility that the year 2033, just 11 years from now, on March 29th of that year, we're actually possibly like exactly 2,000 years from the day in which Jesus arrives into Jerusalem. These are, our, our claims are based in history, right? So on that day, Sunday leading into Holy Week, 
March 29th, 33 AD, Jesus finally entered Jerusalem. It was the Sunday before Passover. The crowds in Jerusalem were growing. The excitement in the city also growing. You know, uh, thousands of Jewish pilgrims were gathering from around the known world in order to participate in the Passover feast. And that wasn't uncommon. That would happen every year at Passover. Thousands were drawn. Thousands of pilgrims from the surrounding region were drawn. But what made this particular Sunday before Passover unique was the reality that most of them had heard about this man, Jesus of Nazareth. An itinerant, miracle-working rabbi, teacher, spoke with authority, challenged both the irreligious and the religious to throw themselves on God's mercies rather than on their own work. And they had heard that this Jesus of Nazareth had actually raised Lazarus from the dead. Some of them had even ventured out to where that miracle had taken place, returning back with word of the event, right? Um, with word of this, this deed that had taken place. In the words of New Testament scholar Andreas Kostenberger, he says, the Passover crowds in Jerusalem were like a powder keg ready for a spark. Filled to the brim with messianic fervor and hatred of Roman rule. Right, so that's, this is the time in history in which Jesus sets his face to Jerusalem. He had already set his face to Jerusalem, knowing full well the purpose of his visit. Coming into Jerusalem in the midst of this like powder keg moment, ready for a spark. Filled to the very brim with an expectation that the Messiah was on his way, right, in a hatred of Roman oppression. Jesus, however, looks at these crowds. He sees them as sheep without a shepherd. He longs for them to know his true purpose. He longs for them to know why he's come, you know. As he enters into Jerusalem on a donkey, he fills, you know, the minds of the already fervent crowd with the prophecy of Zechariah 9.9, in which Israel's future king, their Messiah, would come riding into Jerusalem on the foal of a donkey. The crowds, many of whom were pilgrims from the surrounding regions, many of whom likely came out from Jerusalem to see Jesus, to get a glimpse, they're gathered in part at this moment because they've heard that he's coming. They want to see him. And now finally setting their eyes on him, they, they spread out their cloaks on the road as he's coming in. They spread out palm branches. They, they wave palm branches in the air. This is how a conquering king would have been greeted. It, it, it sort of parallels the way that Simon Maccabees rode into Jerusalem about 370 years earlier um, with, with palm branches being waved. It's an acknowledgement of Jesus' kingship, his right to authority. And now in the midst of that acknowledgement, not only that, not only do they acknowledge him in some sense as a conquering king, but they yell out this, this term, Hosanna! means save now. You'll often hear it said, you know, the same crowd yelling Hosanna here would yell crucify him three days later. And that may be in part true. It's possible that there are some for whom that was part, that participated in that. But um, it's not as simple as, as that. Certainly, some of the crowd came out of Jerusalem. And it's very possible that some of them could have equally been caught up in the fervor against Jesus in the days ahead. Right? Like, a lot of commentators point out that crowd sentiments are a fickle thing. You don't need to go much further than Twitter to experience that reality, right? Like how whipped up a crowd can be on one side and then all of a sudden on the next side very quickly, just on the basis of what groupthink is saying about a subject, right? Um, we actually see this 
reflected in, in Shakespeare's Julius Caesar, in which the same crowd is, the same exact crowd is whipped up in exact opposite frenzies, almost back to back. It's quite, uh, it's funny to read on the pages of Shakespeare. This is what's, you know, there's some who say this could be what's happening here, because on the one hand, we hear shouts of, Son of David, Hosanna, save now, and then crucify him. Um, Son of David's undoubtedly an acknowledgement of Jesus' Messiahship. Like, it's a messianic claim. They believe, they're saying, our hope is that this is the Messiah, right? We're putting our hope, our conviction, in the idea that this is the Messiah. And then, you know, only to, to then yell, crucify him three days later. Having said that, I don't think there's any evidence that these crowds are the same ones that would actively cry out for his crucifixion. I think there is a genuine hope and a desire and, and to, to see Jesus on the throne. And yet, in Luke's account, when Jesus approaches Jerusalem, do you know what he does? He weeps over the city. Why? Like, after that kind of a processional, why would he weep? What's the problem? If this group isn't yelling, crucify him three days later, what's the issue here? Um, well, here you have a group of people rightly crying out to him as the son of David, as the Messiah come to save. And not only that, but they are actually saying, save us. Well, the problem is, they missed what Jesus actually came to do. You know, they missed his Messiahship. Craig Blomberg writes, the crowds have the wrong messianic concept. There will be no victory party when they arrive in Jerusalem. There's this idea that, you know, we're going to follow Jesus in. There's going to be this victory celebration because the king is finally going to be put on his throne. It's exciting, right? So, so we're, going to, we're going to see the Messiah on his throne and then we can finally get to business, get down to business with, with God um, bringing redemption or the kind of salvation that we think we want. No, uh, Blomberg continues. He says, the predominantly Galilean crowd replies truthfully but inadequately. It's true. Yes, it's true. Jesus is the Messiah, right? They're, they're shouting things uh, better than they know, better than they realize, truer than they know, truer than they realize. But it's inadequate. How? Why? Well, in their own fervor, they've missed the reality that, yes, Jesus came to save them, but no, it wasn't from the Romans. It's from a far more central and diabolical problem. Like, like, God could save his people out of these circumstances that they find themselves in. That's easy. Right? But he came to save them from their sin. Something far more central. Something that if he left them in would be uh, far more treacherous for them. He set his face to Jerusalem to die. Not to be crowned king in a worldly sense. And he did that to bear the punishment that his people deserved. So that he, they could have the life that he was holding out to them. Right? He's holding out to them. And yet despite the reality that the substitutionary death was plastered all over the pages of the Old Testament, the Old Testament scriptures that these people knew so well, this crowd is still completely unaware of what's being held out to them. They're making messianic connections with what Jesus is claiming and with what he's doing. They're seeing those connections to places like Zechariah 9.9, but they're completely unaware of what's actually being held out to them. Why? Because they can't see past their own experience. They can't see past their own circumstances. They can't see past their own expectations of what they think Jesus should be coming to do for them. They cry out, save us now, but they, they don't know what they're saying. You know, They don't know how badly they need saving. They don't realize that they actually, what, what they actually need saving from. They needed, what did they need? They needed to know 
and understand who Jesus is, what he actually came to do. The central problem that they're actually plagued with. And so Jesus goes to the cross, right? So Jesus weeps because he, they've missed this and he wants them to know. And then Jesus goes to the cross that they might know, right? So now we, we fast forward to Ephesians chapter 1. The Apostle Paul, talking to churches, wants these churches in the region surrounding Ephesus to be able to live a life worthy of the calling to which they've been called as Christians. So what does he tell them? He says, you need to know, like, the central problem at the core of your heart. You need to understand who Jesus is and what he came to do. Right? You can't miss this. So if you remember from last week, um, verses 3 to 4 really function as something of like a one-sentence summary of the entire book of Ephesians. Starting in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. If you remember, God is triune. So Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, existing from eternity past, already having all of these spiritual blessings perfectly poured out upon the Godhead, and now extending that blessing into the world in love. Right? So, this, this expression, every spiritual blessing, it's Paul's shorthand for everything, everything that Christians have received in and through Jesus. So he continues on. So everything we as Christians have received because of Christ's work in Jesus Christ, through what he's accomplished that we could never do. That's what in Jesus Christ means as we see it repeatedly. Paul wants us to understand this is where we find the realities of these spiritual blessings. It's in Christ, right? So it's in who he is, and it's in the work that he accomplished for us. What work is that? Verse 4, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. So Paul is saying, look, you need to put aside whatever reasons you think Jesus should have had in his, with his coming and instead be confronted with what he actually came to do. The purpose of this writing, the purpose of, of this chapter, is so that you will hear, number one, what God has done for you that you could never do for yourselves, so that, number two, your life can be transformed. Because it's only through what God has accomplished through Jesus that your life can be made new. And your life needs to be made new. You need it. So now looking backwards at the cross and resurrection of Jesus, so Jesus, right, Palm Sunday is looking forward to the cross. Paul now, as he's writing about these same realities, looks backward toward the cross and resurrection of Jesus. And Paul now tells us what these spiritual blessings are. He lists out these spiritual blessings that we've received through Christ. You know, in case we might still have some misplaced messianic expectations of our own, like just like the crowd outside of Jerusalem had. In case we might think, Hosanna! Save, save us now from the wrong political candidate. Save us now from, from our, our poor circumstances. Save us now from having a job we don't like. Save us now from whatever we think plagues us the most. Save us now from what the world says we should worry about the most. Save us now. In case that's the, what we might think, Paul clarifies and tells us exactly why Jesus rode into Jerusalem on this Palm Sunday and everything that we receive as a result. He begins this letter by praising God for blessing us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. He, he begins by pointing out that believers in Jesus have been given blessing from the Lord that far outmatches anything that they could even comprehend, that they could think, that they could think to ask for, that they could imagine. 
And now he continues by telling us what these spiritual blessings are. That we might be strengthened, that we might be prepared to live according to them. We might know the truth, and that might change, that might change us, Lord. Uh, so, so the Lord um, essentially uses Paul here to remind us of the gospel. It's essentially our outline. These spiritual blessings are actually different aspects of the good news of Jesus. It's all about the gospel. This good news of Jesus at the, at the core of Paul's letter. Remember, chapters 1 through 3, Paul's unpacking this big, glorious gospel of grace. And then he gets to chapter 4, verse 1, and he says, Therefore, right, as a result of this, this is how you should live. So here we're looking at gospel aspects. And our outline is actually this. Four aspects of the gospel that remind believers of our story in Jesus and strengthen us to live according to it. That's the trajectory that Paul has us on. So, four aspects of the gospel that remind believers of our story in Jesus and strengthen us to live according to it. The idea is that by the end of the chapter, we should be so gripped by the grace of God that we've received that our hearts will be moved to praise along with Paul. We become worshipers. And when our hearts are moved to joy in the gospel, a new set of desires start to emerge in which we want what Jesus wants rather than trying to fit Jesus to come into line with our desires, which is what the crowd was doing on Palm Sunday, right? So let's look at the first aspect of the gospel, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 through 6. Here we see the, the gospel mode, gospel mode, election and adoption. Election and adoption. What's the mode of the gospel? In other words, What's the manner in which the good news of Jesus is actually experienced, is actually brought to bear on the human life? And, and Paul's answer to that question is that we've been elected, we've been chosen, we've been adopted by God. Look at verses 4 to 6. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. So hang on real quick. Oftentimes, you know, we might, we might struggle with this doctrine of election. There are those who read what the scriptures have to say about election, predestination, and we wrestle. As a young man in particular, I really wrestled through this doctrine. I wrestled with the scriptures. There was a lot that I think the scriptures clearly taught that I was resistant to hear about as it relates to what we're about to see. But something that really helped me understand it actually is right here in between these two verses of 4 and 5. Because you could translate this in two ways. You could see the Greek absolutely could be translated both ways. And New Testament theology backs up both interpretations. So listen, you could say, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. Or you could say, in love he predestined us for adoption to himself, his sons through Jesus Christ. But the point is, Love is this driving feature. Like, love is it's this love of God that then because of his work we embody. So at the heart of this doctrine of election, we find the love of God. Find the love of God. So we continue, right? So according to the purpose of his will, end of verse 5, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. So as we said last week, Paul says one thing that affects the other. God's work through, through Christ and the gospel actively shapes our lives. But the first aspect of God's work that Paul mentions here that I really do think does that, it really does change the way we live, is this doctrine of election. What is it? Well, it's exactly what Paul writes. This very definition of election 
Uh, the very definition of election, and, and this is one of many passages in which this is the case, is written right here on, in this chapter. God chose us. He chose genuine believers in Christ because of what Christ did. That's what in Christ means. In Jesus, in Christ. It's because and through and now in Him that all this happens. Before the foundation of the world, before any of us had been born, before I was born, before any of us had done anything good or bad, right or wrong, right? Before we had believed one way or the other, God chose us in him before the foundation of the world. And Paul expands what he means by that in verse 5 by saying we've been predestined for adoption as sons, right? So it's not just that God's let us free from the prison house. Like we're going to see language of redemption in this chapter, which signals like God freeing us from something that enslaves us, freeing us from the prison it's not just that he's freed us from the prison house, it's that he's brought us into his own family. That's the purpose of election. He's, he's chosen us to be a part of his own family. So when the Bible speaks of election, when it speaks of God's sovereign choice of believers before the foundation of the world, it's always spoken of in terms of God's will rather than anything about us. Right? It's hard to, for us to wrap our minds around this, but it's, this is the case. It doesn't, look at the grammar, right? Just look at Ephesians 1. I shouldn't need to convince, right? So it doesn't say he predestined us for adoption according to our hearts, our ability, our brain power, us figuring out what others didn't, right? It doesn't say that there was something about us that made God say, man, Jeremy, he's just an outstanding candidate for Christianity, isn't he? Uh, his heart is so soft to the gospel. His reasoning is so logical, you know, as he reads the Bible and evaluates culture, his desire appears to be so in line with mine. As I look into the future and see this future Jeremy, I will choose him. Right? Why? 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 This gives us this sense of like, so if that were the case, there'd be something in which I'd be able to boast. And I think collectively churches, then our posture toward non-believers would be something like this. Be like, yeah, non-believers. It's like, uh, what's wrong with those guys? Like, why can't... Why can't they see the truth like I saw the truth? Why can't they like read the scriptures and see like that it's obvious? Like obviously they're missing some logic here. Obviously they're not as receptive as I was. Right? There's like, there's cause to boast. But the Bible does not talk that way. The Bible does not speak of God looking into the future and choosing us before the foundation of the world the way that team captains in gym class choose their dodgeball team. Like he, he's got a great arm. She can catch really well. We're going to need someone with speed and... I guess that's the last person. I, um, not trying to trigger anyone. <laughs> this isn't how. This isn't how God decides. It speaks of the scriptures. Instead, speak of God making this choice. Why? According to the purpose of His will. His will. It's interesting that the word "will" is used, and it's used often. His will, not my, not even my will. All right. And and we see this uh, in the next set of verses. We're told of God's choice in verse 4. Like, look at the words that are used. Scan chapter 1 with me. We're told of his choice. We're told of predestination in verse 5. We're told about his good pleasure in verses 5 and 9. His will, again, will, will be repeated. It was in the introduction that we looked at last week, and then verses 5 and 9 and 11. We look at the outworking of his saving purposes in, in verses 9 and 11. His appointment and his plan of all of these things, also in verse 11, in other words, this has nothing to do with something about us. 
and everything to do with the grace and mercy of God. And the reason this has nothing to do with us, and we really, like, this is why, this is why when we talk about the gospel, we have to talk about election. This is why. The reason it has nothing to do with us is because if it did, we'd all be in serious trouble. That would not be good news. Like, it's good news that our salvation has nothing to do with us and everything to do with a holy God. Everything to do with a gracious God. Because the whole point of the gospel is that we could never do it for ourselves. This is why Jesus had to come. This is why he rode in to Jerusalem. Think back to the Old Testament. So we spent like, we spent like 16 months in Genesis, right? So let's put that good time to use, that long extended time to use. You guys remember this? God chose Abraham, chapter 12. He chose Abraham in order to bless Abraham and bring blessing, bring God's blessings to every nation through him, okay? But we're shown repeatedly following this like, this choice of God of Abraham that had nothing to do with Abraham's goodness or ability or behavior or even his heart. Had nothing to do with it. Like, in fact, the theme of those Abrahamic narratives was what? Promise in Jeopardy. As a pastor, you always kind of hope. Do they remember? No. Promise in Jeopardy. It was a long time ago. Promise in Jeopardy, right? Like, there's this idea that this promise is extended to Abraham. And narrative after narrative after narrative, the theme, the cycle is, God's made this promise, Abraham screws up. Abraham is passive. Abraham is sinful. Abraham, like, and because of the nature of how he screws up, it seems like the promise that was made is going to be lost. The promised land is going to be lost. The, the, uh, Abraham's ability to, to, you know, bear this future promised seed through lies and deceit and other things like that, that's going to be, right? So every single time it's like, oh, there's something about the nature of the promise that now because of Abraham seems to be in jeopardy. But is it in jeopardy? No. Why? Because as God's covenant with Abraham shows us in, in, in chapters 15 through 17, all of the weight of that covenant, all of the weight of that promise rests on God, not on Abraham. Like, so it wasn't, do you remember this? It wasn't uncommon for ancient kings to form this covenant with one another in which these animals would be split in two, cut in two, and then separated on different sides of this walking path. And then these kings from these different nations that were making some kind of a covenant together, maybe a covenant of peace, or desiring to work together, they would link arms, and they would walk through these, these animals that were torn in two together. And this was as if to say to everyone watching, to one another, if I break this covenant, then allow uh, what happened to these animals to happen to me. Allow me to be torn limb from them. It's a way of expressing that, right? But fortunately for Abraham, and it really is fortunately, God causes a deep sleep to come upon him, right? He splits the animals up, and this is where like, Abraham's got to be like the heart's beating, swallowing heart. Causes a deep sleep to come upon Abraham, and then God passes between the animals by himself. Why? Because Abraham can't do it. If he were to bear part of the responsibility for the covenant, he'd be due judgment, he'd be torn limb from limb. So God says to Abraham, I've chosen you for this promise, but the reason for it and the weight of it falls entirely on my shoulders and not on yours. And that kind of choice continues throughout the scriptures. Like, God chose Israel to be his people. 
to be his treasured possession from among the peoples, to invite then the nations into that reality along with them. But we're shown that this choice had nothing to do with Israel's goodness or ability or behavior or even her heart. In fact, the theme of those narratives also kind of has that ring of promise and jeopardy. Right? Every single time that Israel tries to save themselves or leans on their own efforts or leans on their perceived strengths or, and this is what happens repeatedly for Israel, you know, they're constantly thinking, yeah, God chose us, but it was something about us. And every time they think that, and there's like this haughtiness toward the nations or a sense of entitlement because of who they are, everything just like collapses in on itself. It's just like disastrous for them. It ends in like exile and losing the land and all that stuff, right? Um, so God says, says um, I've chosen you for this promise, but the reason for it and the weight of it falls entirely on my shoulders, not yours. It was because the Lord loved Israel. You know, like it, it had nothing to do. God, God's choice was entirely because of God's grace. It had nothing to do with Israel's choice. It had nothing to do with Israel's righteous behavior. I wish we had time to unpack like Deuteronomy 7, 6 through 8, Deuteronomy 14, 2. It makes it absolutely clear that his choice of them had nothing to do with them. It was because the Lord loved Israel. He kept his promise that he made to his forefathers because the Lord loved Israel. And right here in Ephesians, in the opening verse, in the opening verses, do you know who the object of God's choice is? Right? It's us, it's believers, it's believers. Those who now belong to the people of God, those who now praise the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So if you praise the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, if that's you, if you know God now by, by, through the work of Christ, then you are elect, right? You're chosen in him before the foundation of the world. Now, you might say, Jeremy, is, isn't the election or choice of Israel the choosing of a people for God's possession rather than a person for salvation. Do you see the difference? Like, isn't it choosing a people for whom to work rather than an individual for salvation? And isn't that a lot? Isn't choosing a people for whom to work much different from choosing an individual for salvation, right? And the answer is, yes, there is a sense of like what, what theologians call corporate election here. That God's people have been chosen. That he's, he's choosing a people for himself. Even here, I think in, in Ephesians, you can make the case that that is present alongside of like individual election. But listen, God is selecting a people for his own possession. There's no doubt about it. But, okay, there's this way that we have of reading the Bible in which we pit two very true things against one another as though they're at odds. You know? And usually, that, usually we do this when there's some kind of an agenda that we're driving at. You know, so people might say, oh, you know, like, is, is this, you say the gospel, is this the gospel of Jesus or the gospel of Paul? You know, and it's like, the gospels absolutely proclaim the same gospel that the apostle Paul proclaims. I'm sorry, that's just the reality. We take tr two true things and we pit them against each other and we can do the same thing here. We can form this false dichotomy, a false choice, and we can say, oh, election is corporate. It's not individual. God doesn't select individuals for salvation. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, but we strain the text to the absolute breaking point when we read in this next set of verses about being forgiven, about being redeemed. Even here in this, in this set of verses about being adopted as sons of God. Friends, these are not categories that Paul would use to describe only the choosing of a people apart from salvation. 
He's saying God's sovereign over salvation. That's absolutely what he's saying. God is sovereign over salvation. Jeremy, what about free will, if that's true? I had a whole section in my manuscript dealing with free will and how I think it's compatible here. I took it out. You're welcome. Uh, Via Sharp. You know, if you're interested in hearing about it, we can talk later. I took it out because I, I was worried I'm overstating my case and actually stepping outside of what the text clearly says. So let's keep this time for what I think the text clearly says. And if you want my thoughts about how this all works out, come talk to me. But let me just make two pastoral comments about that question. You know, about this doctrine of election and why we struggle with it. First, when we're talking about election from a 30,000-foot view, man, this is clearly what it looks like. You know, so like when we're, when we're up here and we're just looking at election theologically, like, how does God interact in the world as it relates to salvation? This is what it looks like. It's undoubtedly God who chooses. That choice has nothing to do with us, something about us that gives us some kind of merit. It's not. Otherwise, it would give us a reason to boast. You could absolutely boast. But Paul's very clear in the scriptures. The only reason to boast is Jesus. The only thing I'm able to boast in is Christ. The only difference between me and a non-believer is Jesus. You know? Right? So it's not something about me. And that's very clear in the scriptures. So, undoubtedly, right... It's solely the grace of God in Christ. And what that means, like why that's so important to grasp, why we spend time looking at the 30,000 foot view together as Christians, is that if you're currently embarking in a self-salvation project, in which you're trying to be seen by God and others as good and right, trying to like justify yourself, trying to through your own actions or ability or strengths or whatever, save yourself, whether that's in some form of religion or whether that's like an irreligious, like, you know, trying to make yourself right by the standards of the world, you're embarking on futility. Like, there's nothing you can do to save yourself. There's nothing you can do to make yourself right. There's nothing you can do to grant yourself something that you don't possess to begin with. You, you can't. Like, if you don't possess something, you can't grant, grant it to yourself. I can't, like, grant myself a 1989 Toyota FJ62, you know, um, cruiser. I wish, but we can't do that. You can't grant yourself something that you don't possess. And I think on a base level, all of us understand that we don't possess righteousness. You know, like, I think on a base level, we understand human depravity. Human depravity isn't actually very hard to find in ourselves. My experience is with... When we start talking to people about human depravity, it's not difficult to press into the point where it's like, okay, this is a problem for me, right? Okay. The reality, and and so the 30,000 foot view is important because of this. The reality of our need was far deeper than we know. And it goes far deeper than we want to admit. Every single time, pastorally, I'm, I'm coming alongside of someone who's stubborn in repentance. Every single time I'm coming alongside of someone who's hardened in their belief to the gospel, the stumbling block is this recognition of our sin. Like it's a very hard thing to admit, to acknowledge that I'm actually a sinner, that I'm actually worse than I think. You know, it's hard for people. The reality of our need goes deeper than we know. We can't usually, we don't usually act that way or live in a way that reflects it, but it's true. So second, while that 35, that 30,000 foot view, it's undoubtedly what it looks like. It's enormously difficult to comprehend on a ground level. 
So when we start talking about the practicality of this, okay, um, it, it gets difficult. That is to say, um, the practicality is meant for you to understand that there's nothing you can do. Right? That it's like you can't save yourself. The only thing to do is throw yourself on the mercies of Christ. That's the practicality of it. Outside of that, like, the Bible teaches both God's sovereignty and human responsibility. Both are claimed. So, yes, this is true about election, but it's also true that humans are morally responsible creatures who choose, they act a certain way, they, they're, they're held accountable for the decisions they make, they desire certain things, and you're morally responsible. Both are true. God is sovereign over everything. Humans are responsible for their actions. Both are true. Now, it's possible, and I think this is what we do. This is what we do when we try to come down from that 30,000 foot level, and we try to apply this in ways other than our need for Christ. We tend to, like, teach one at the expense of the other. Like, um, oh, no, uh, I've got all this free will, so God can't be sovereign. Or God's sovereign, so it doesn't matter what I do, you know. And whenever we do that, we're in trouble. Right? Like we're, not, we're not teaching, we're not believing the whole counsel of God. So while there are some who might use the doctrine of election as an excuse, for instance, not to evangelize. Because God's preordained the elect after all. So why would I spend any time evangelizing if God does the choosing? Well, the more biblical and thoughtful response to this doctrine is to believe strongly that God uses the proclaimed word to stir people to believe that that's a promise that we have, that we know for sure that people will hear the gospel and come to believe, and so we should proclaim it all the more. Right? We're, we're responsible for our actions. We're responsible as a church to evangelize, to share. Like, people uniquely need Jesus, and we have this opportunity to extend that, that gospel to the world, and so we're responsible to do that. The Bible doesn't teach God's sovereignty at the expense of human responsibility, but there are others who might put so much emphasis on the human responsibility portion that it almost seems like the mission of God is dependent on the church. You know, that, that what happens at the end of Revelation is dependent on what we do, right? So, like, all the weight is on us, and, like, God's just sort of reacting on the basis of what happens here. That's not the way forward either. These two realities that seem to be in tension are absolutely compatible, and the evidence is actually found at the cross, of Christ, which is where we turn our focus to now. So the first aspect of the gospel, gospel mode, election and adoption, uh, we see more evidence of the reality that it doesn't depend on our work, but rather on God's in the next aspect, which is the gospel means, the means of the gospel, the cross of Christ, verses 7 and 8. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. So this aspect of the gospel, as well as the next one, numbers two and three, I'm going to preach through this. This is my text for this coming Friday night, Good Friday. Um, I'm going to unpack these verses more completely. Specifically this phrase, in him we have redemption through his blood. Come and, and join us on Friday night as we teach through this together. But for now, let me just point out that it, uh, if the merit needed for our election and adoption had something to do with us, it's very strange that the means of this gospel would be found outside of us. And not only would it be found outside of us, but its purpose would be to make us right because we're not. Right? The reality is that our situation, our state of affairs, was one in which we were imprisoned by our own willful, sinful action. And in other places, that's why Paul uses the redemption language here, because in other places, Paul writes we're enslaved to our sin. So, like, imagine it. If what you worship is something other than God, you end up enslaved to that thing, right? 
If you worship your job, if, if that's what is most important to you, it eventually just eats you alive. It does. Like, look, Pew Research data bears this out, Barna, Gallup, like, all these research institutes demonstrate that the more emphasis, like, the more important that is to you, the more you grasp at it, the more it just eats you alive. David Brooks has written a couple of books on this, actually. Okay, so it's definitely true. Like, if, if you worship the sport or instrument that you play, whatever it is, like your studies, it eats you alive. Why? The expectations. The fear of losing it, because eventually you will. The inability to hold an identity in these things. Like, it's, it's unsustainable for you to find an identity in these things. You can't. You can't do it. It enslaves you. The same is true of any relationship outside of the living God, if that's what you make primary. And yet, the text here says that God came to redeem us, which has the strong sense of liberation from bondage, liberation from imprisonment, liberation from death. Why? Because of liberation from sin. And we're going to talk about this on Friday. Christians have been granted this by the cross, forgiven of sin, released from the prison house, not just set out on our own with a hearty good luck, but, but we've been brought into God's family by way of adoption. And this had to happen by the blood of Jesus because we were unable to accomplish it for ourselves. So gospel mode, election and adoption. Gospel means the cross of Christ. And third, gospel mystery. Or you could even say gospel message, everything points to Jesus. Everything points to Jesus. Verses 9 and 10, which I'll also uh, be going over this Friday night. It's part of my text. I'll be preaching 7 through 10 on Friday. Making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on the earth. On Palm Sunday, it's just helpful to note this. It's helpful to point out that while the crowds made up of Jewish pilgrims, those coming outside of Jerusalem to get a glimpse of Jesus, while they had a wrong-headed expectation of the Messiah, this mystery of God that Paul talks about had already been disclosed in the Old Testament scriptures. Like, Jesus says to Nicodemus, are you the teacher of Israel and yet you still are not aware, you still do not know these things, right? He tells the crowd in John's gospel account, you know, he says, you search the scriptures, but it's the scriptures that testify about me. He tells, after his death, he, he talks to Cleopas, after his resurrection, he's walking alongside of the Emmaus Road with Cleopas, and Cleopas says, ah, he doesn't recognize Jesus, but he says, man, we had hoped that this man was the one who had come to, to rescue Israel, but he died. You know, and he says, oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Like, there's this expectation that Jesus has in all these interactions that if people were truly reading the scriptures and seeking understanding, they would have concluded the very thing that he came to do. You know, like... It was the mystery of God in the sense that it was once hidden. Why was it hidden? Because of the darkness of our hearts. Because we could not see our need for him. Despite the fact that it was written there, it was mystery. It was, it was hidden. How? Because of our sin. Because of darkened hearts. And now it's been disclosed in Jesus who came that we might see it. And now our, our eyes might meet those same scriptures and see it and, and come to, to praise him by his spirit at work within us. And, and uh, this is why it's so significant that we gather on Friday to focus our attention on the cross. And all that finally brings us, gospel mode of election and adoption, the gospel means of the cross, the mystery or message that everything points to Jesus. So now there's a gospel membership here. Inheritance and assurance. Okay, so here's my question. What if, what if this is all true? And it is, but listen. If you're reading this, you know, if, you, if you're a skeptic, if, if you're someone who's seeking Christ, you read this, it's like, 
You might ask, what, okay, what if it's true? Like, what if while God created a good and perfect world in order for us to live as his people in his place under his rule, what if we really did rebel against the good king? Like, what if it's true that we bear a problem of sin in our hearts that we can't fix and that plagues us and plagues everything around us? Like, as a church, we could centrally talk about all, all, all kinds of things. We could choose to make a whole host of things like our central or primary focus. But we are just messing around if this isn't the central thing that we're concerned with. What if it's true that we can't save ourselves? What can we be given because of what Christ did on the cross? Verse 11, in him we've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who's the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So we're given a gospel membership, a gospel identity, a gospel life in which we now live to the glory of God. We have obtained an inheritance, although it's interesting, I wrestled with this phrase all week, and I think it might be better translated, it's in the passive voice, it might be better translated that we actually belong to God as his inheritance, as God's portion, and we'll have more to say on why that's the case in the weeks ahead, but there's no doubt at the, at the bottom here, we, we have a guarantee of inheritance, a gospel identity, a gospel life. That now we have in the spirit, we're sealed by God. If you remember from Revelation, everyone has a mark. Mark with Satan, mark with God's mark, right? The mark of the beast or the seal of God. Here we see the seal, the seal, the deposit, the Holy Spirit is given to believers, okay? And so here we have this, this seal that we're given, this guarantee. What's the guarantee? Well, the ultimate way in which this becomes a reality for you is the same Jesus Christ that rode into Jerusalem two, almost 2,000 years ago. The same Jesus Christ, who's at the center of everything the Bible teaches and points forward to, the same Jesus Christ, in whose work we can be made right, is the same Jesus Christ, in whom you were claimed by God to the praise of his glory. There's a lot to unpack there in the weeks ahead, like Paul's going to. He's going to describe what he means by that. But the central theme for this morning, the bottom line, Jesus is plan A. There's never a plan B. There's never going to be. Jesus is plan A. It's in Jesus and through Jesus that all of this is accomplished, that we receive all of it. Here's, and, and here's why this is important. Here's, here's what I think. I think it's easy for us. It's easy. It's easy for me. It's easy for us, right along with the crowd on Palm Sunday, to not be able to see past our own expectations of what we think Jesus should be coming to do for the world. How we think he should save. What we think he should have been focused on. What we think he should save us from. And so we may well cry out, save us now, but have no idea what we're saying. We may live like we don't know how badly we actually need saving. We might live like we don't realize what it is that we actually need saved from. And so what do we need? Gospel proclamation. We need the gospel proclaimed to our hearts this morning to see that our problem is sin, and our answer is repentance and belief in the gospel. The mode of the gospel, that we aren't, a repentance and belief that we aren't Christians because we were good or smart or thoughtful, soft-hearted enough, but because of the grace of God through Jesus Christ. The means of the gospel, that on the cross, Jesus stood in our place, taking what we deserved, the wrath of God as a payment for sin, more about that on Friday night. 
The mystery of the gospel or message that everything in this universe, everything in the scriptures and the whole universe ultimately comes back to Jesus, points to Jesus, is summed up in Jesus as Savior and Lord and the membership of the gospel that we're now given an imperishable and unfading inheritance of life that's only made possible by God in Jesus Christ. This is what Christians proclaim to the world, to the nations. You know, Paul says... There's two different categories in the, those closing verses. There's the Jewish believers. Paul says, we who are the first to hope in Christ, he's talking about the Jews. And yet you, when you first heard the gospel, you believed and received the Spirit. He's talking about Gentiles. Like, this gospel membership includes those from every tribe, tongue, and nation. So the gospel must be proclaimed to the world. I'm so thankful for the ministry of those whom God calls to go overseas. And actually, at Gospel Life Church, you know, we have these moments where we send people. It's like this bittersweet moment where we send people as a church family into the nations or into uh, other neighborhoods. So we sent Northside Neighborhood Church, Patrick and Shelby Ray, as well as their community group from Gospel Life Church. We commissioned and sent them to plant a church, planted them in North Minneapolis. This morning, we send someone, to in, in, we commissioned someone toward Indonesia, Ashton and Hannah Baysmore. We've been so thankful to have their family with us in this transition period as they have all along been working toward this moment for the last several years of their lives to, to head to Indonesia to, to be missionaries. And I'm excited to hear briefly from uh, Ashton this morning and to have, his whole fa- have their whole family come up so that we can pray for them. So Ashton and Hannah, come on forward. And, and we want to hear what you're going to be doing in Indonesia we also want to pray over you today. 